Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. There's no waiting, but I go out to find it. You know, I'm not just like, oh, just hit me with some cool idea. I have intention. Today's episode is the first episode of the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. On the first episode, I get to talk with Linda Wolverton, an American screenwriter, playwright, and novelist. She has done everything, folks, but her most well-known work is writing the screenplay for Beauty and the Beast, which is also the first animated film ever to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. She also co-wrote the screenplay for a little movie called The Lion King and adapted her own Beauty and the Beast screenplay into the Broadway adaptation for the film, for which she received Tony Award nomination and won an Oliver Award. She also wrote the screenplays for Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland movies, which were Tim's highest grossing movies ever, over a billion dollars at the box office, along with Disney's Maleficent movies. And she's currently working on a film adaptation of the children's book, Eloise. In our conversation, she speaks on the persistence and perseverance that brought her to write these Disney classics. Linda also shares about her decision to pursue her dreams, her time as a substitute teacher, and actions she took to make these things happen for herself. Enjoy the show. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm and honored that you invited me. I am so happy that you are here. At the end of the podcast, I'll tell a little bit about how we met because it's one of my favorite stories. But obviously, they, our audience already knows who you are, so we don't have to talk about that. And and this first question I want to ask you is a little bit of a. I'll tell you why I'm asking it later. But you've had such uh, an incredible career. You've had such there's so many milestones that we're going to talk about. My question that I want to start off with is: Have you ever had a moment where you're like? you're thinking to yourself, I can't believe this is my life. And my guess is probably a, a few times, but I would love to hear like one version of that, of a moment in the last, you know, several years of your life where you're like, man, I can't, I can't believe that I get to do this. I think the one of the most crucial moments, I think, and I'm going to go back further than in recent years is when we did Beauty and the Beast mm -hmm. uh, animated and we, and we premiered it in Florida at the park. Uh -huh. And they for the for the premiere, they were huge premiere parties back then. They had built Bell's Village. Wow. So I walked out of the screening. I'm sorry about the dogs barking. That's all right. It's life. We were it's That's life. Right. Um, and I, I walked out of this out of the screening, which I had seen a hundred million times, you know, every single frame, you know, poured over. Yeah. And I walked out of that into my own imagination. Wow. The reality of my own imagination, it was the first time that it ever happened. I've been, done that since, but it was the most, that was the most stunning moment that this came out of my head. Yeah. I'm standing in a place that was in my head and now it's real. And that was, that was like pinch me and uh, I can't believe I get to do this. And it happens every time when I, when I get to do another one, it's like, wow, this just was in my head, uh, <laughs> you know, six months ago or whatever. That's, that's pretty cool. That is, that's incredible. And I, I suppose that gets into maybe why you do what you do, but I want to go back. So, so with our conversation, I want to focus a little bit on transitions because you have transitioned so many times to different mediums and, and without going into your resume, I mean, it is pretty impressive, uh, plays, musicals, television, film, there isn't a really a genre of writing you haven't done and done well, uh, you know, fiction books, those types of things. And so, but it, you know, it started, so you got your MFA from Cal State Fullerton and then your, your first, not to, not to spend too much time here, but 
your first gig, I think you started a theater company and you were producing in like in like malls and churches and, and, and yes, <laughs> a little tiny little little theater company. I wrote and directed and performed in everything. There was like three of us in the company. I financed the company and we and we toured to shopping malls and schools and uh, parks. It was wonderful until yeah. I was in a mall. I was a turtle. I had a <laughs> I had a wading pool on my back. Um, my face was green, and there I was, you know, acting my heart out with my fellow actors. And there was two little. First of all, there's no acu acoustics in a mall. It's ridiculous. No. Yeah, so nobody can hear you anyway. Yeah. So there's like three little kids on the little square of carpet, you know, in the gigantic mall. They weren't. They couldn't hear me. They didn't care. They had their ice cream. Their parents had plunked them there, and I looked down at them, and I'm in my turtle outfit. And I'm thinking, there's got to be a way to reach more kids than this. Mm. So for for me, that was another moment of okay, I got I disbanded it, and yeah. I came to L.A. Now you know what? That's a really interesting way of phrasing that. There's got to be a way to reach more kids than this because I feel like I feel like some artists get into it because they just want to express themselves, and I don't mean that despairingly, but it really is about getting what's inside of them out. The way that you phrase that makes it sound like you wanted to make an impact of some kind. Like, why did you see it that way? Like, reach kids how? Reach kids what? Reach kids why? Because I felt like I had something to say. Because I wanted to impart something, and it it took so much effort and and all all of that energy into creating something that nobody could see. Or I could take all of that energy and put it somewhere else in another medium or with another company and everybody would see or a lot of more people would see. It's like the difference between when I was writing Saturday morning animation. For a seven minute cartoon, there's like five outlines you have to write and you get notes on your outlines and you finally get to go to script. And I'm thinking, well, wait a second, why not the same thing, but on a bigger venue, like a feature film? <laughs> Is that a driving thread? Like every time you you pivot was around kind of uh, expanding the impact, expanding the reach? Yes, because I've always felt like I wanted to affect the culture in some way because I'm a child of the 60s. Mm -hmm. And I really, I grew up believing that, you know, we could change things. Yeah. So I still believe that. And every time out, I, I, I don't even take on anything unless it can maybe nudge the culture forward a little tiny bit in some way. Otherwise, it's a waste. It's a waste of all the money for the movie and, you know, that could like finance a small country for years. You know, it's, it's, it's like make, make it impactful, make it mean something. Obviously that resonates with me and our work. And I love hearing that. I love hearing that from artists. Uh, I look at artists as the greatest mechanism for achieving change in the world. You're doing the theater company, you dissolved it. And then I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your first gig then was like back office staff at CBS. Is that? Yeah, I was just on a desk. I was on a desk at CBS. I think about this a lot because our company works with back offices sometimes. Uh, sometimes the executives and the leadership staff will say, hey, would you mind working with our, our support staff? And we really, really enjoy it when they say that. So oftentimes support staff are just kind of clocking in, clocking out, not like in a disrespectful way, but you know, it's, it's a job. It pays the bills. It's, they're good at it. They like being helpful. But you look, it seems like you looked at it a little differently. Like even that way you phrased that, you looked at it as research. What did the research look like? Like what, I learned what a lot about demographics. I would read all, all like the studies on the demographics. Um, it was just sort of fascinating for me. You know, I'm an artist and it's a drive. It's actually a drive. You, like a dog is a drive to hunt or to, to run or to, or to protect. It's a drive. I have to create something. 
Um, and so in that environment, I was just looking for my, I was looking for my outlet. And ultimately I couldn't find an outlet there. There was no outlet. It was blocked. Because why would you say that's true? Woman. Yep. I didn't have a film background. I had a theater background mm. and I wanted to move into children's programming. But the woman who ran it said that, uh, it had nothing to do with the theater. So there's like this kind of stay in your lane, like stay in your lane, be a good girl you know, don't push beyond the boundaries. I ran up against that. I did break through a little bit and became a development executive, which was great because then I'm in, in an office taking notes, but then all the creative people come in <laughs> and, and those are my people. Yeah. And so they come in and they're pitching. So they're sweating and jumping up and down and laying on the floor. And I'm like, I'm them. I'm not me with my little notepad. Yeah. And you're yeah. so close. I mean, that's what you, it's almost like masochistically, like you're so close, you're, you're watching with a front row seat, the people you want to be, but you're trapped in this other job. And how many people do you think are doing that right now? Lots. Lots. Yeah. Lots. But you know what though? And as an encouragement to them, and I want to extract this because I think you, there's so many things that you do that I think that you know that you do, but I don't always know if you do know that you're doing it. Like when you say that, like there were blocks it's not like you were sitting there doing your job, waiting to get picked, you know, and then complaining that no one's picking you. Like you were taking initiative. Like even the lady who who told you, hey, it's never going to work because you're in theater. I imagine there was some kind of conversation. Like you asked and they said no. Is that right? Oh, I definitely asked. I tried every every possible, you know, be an apprentice or whatever they had, the little programs that they had. Nothing, uh -huh. nothing opened up for me at all. Um, and so I wrote a book. Because no one, because no one will let you play. You're like, fine. You know, that's the thing about writing is that you don't need need anyone's permission. Hmm. You can write. You don't have to have a team. You don't have to have actors. You don't have to have a director. You can write. So I did. And what did that look like? Was this because this was this is during lunch breaks, right? At first. Yeah. Tell me how that works because I think that's really interesting when people are like, oh, I don't have time. I'm too busy. You know, I can't have a creative outlet or I can't pursue that thing that I want to do. And here you are. You have to do both things at once. If you have to have a day gig, you have to do both things at once. You will die if you don't. And how did you structure that? How did you keep from burning out? I didn't care enough about the other job. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I burn out? I didn't care. I was answering phones. Who cares? You, yeah. you know. Uh, and I was terrible at it. I was terrible. Um, I can only imagine you in customer service. <laughs> not good. So what it looked like was my desk was in the hallway at CBS, Television City uh, in Beverly, on Beverly and Fairfax. Mm -hmm. And all of the assistance desks were in the hallway. Mm -hmm. So, and executives then took two hour lunch breaks because they could have their meetings. I see. So I had two hours and most of the other assistants went out together. I did that for a while, you know, and we talked about boyfriends or, uh -huh. you know, stuff. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I got two hours here. So I stayed and I wrote this book in the hallway. Now, what what exactly does that look like? Paint me the picture of Linda. Well, first of all, there's no computers then. Yeah, I was wondering that. So it was uh, on a Selectric typewriter. Wow. Yeah. In the yeah. hallway, like in sitting the hallway. in a desk or on the ground or? And, and a, on the, at my desk. Uh -huh. Rather than get up and go to lunch, I just stayed there. Hmm. I just stayed and, and took that time and wrote this um, young adult novel. And what's what what was that process like? Was it did, did you have any goals for yourself? Did you have like like page ca word count page count or is it just kind of just no. hacking away? 
just as much as I can get done in that two hours, you, you know. Um, I had a boyfriend who had read like the first chapter and he was a writer on the show Fame. Mm -hmm. Remember the show Fame? Yeah. And he said, if you don't finish this, I'll leave you. That's a good boyfriend. That was a good boyfriend. Yeah. So I finished it. That's incredible. Now, where did you, I know you have your master's of arts. Is that where you learned how to write fiction? Because up until then, it's more theater. How did you figure that out? I didn't, I didn't have any background. I just, I was actually just, I just wrote a story. I didn't learn how to write. I'd read everything in my life all the way up till then. So I'd read a lot. Uh, we had a family that was, you know, the coin of the realm in my family was literature and reading. Mm. We didn't have a television. So I don't know. I know I, I've never taken lessons or I've never, you know, studied it. I just do it. One of my favorite writers is a guy named G.K. Chesterton. And people would complain about him that sometimes his first drafts, he was like Mozart almost, his first drafts were his only draft. Was that, I mean, did you just like spit it out and it was right? Or did you, oh, you no. know, how, yeah, no. what did that process look like? I self-edit, edit, you know, spit it out and then self-edit and do it again and do it again. And then, so now you have this draft. And the boyfriend was very instrumental and he had, his father was a famous writer. Hmm. And so he sent the draft to his father's agent hmm. and he liked it and said he would represent me. That is awesome. And it worked out like that, like your first, your first thing, boom, book deal. Book deal. Yeah. And yeah. this is kind of a weird question, I guess, but did it sell well? Did it do well? No, it terrible. Terrible. Well, it's not very good. It wasn't very good. No. Um, it didn't sell well. And then I wrote another one, uh -huh. which was uh, actually my life story in narrative fiction form, mm -hmm. my childhood. And that was way before its time. And that sold worse. <laughs> but that book became my calling card when I left my job at CBS. I wanted to write animated features and I took that book to Disney. Now, is there, and it's okay if, if you don't want to talk about it, but there was a stint where you were like a substitute teacher or something. Is that right? In between. Yeah. When I left the CBS job, when I was like, oh, I can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't fill another jug of coffee. Cannot. My, my hands wouldn't actually do it. I stood back. I went to fill them and I just stood back and I said, nope, that's they were it. rebelling. Not doing it again. That's awesome. My so, hands were rebelling. <laughs> so then yeah. is this another pay the, not like a pay the bill job? Like, cause for some people being at CBS with an affection for the industry and storytelling, that would be close enough. And it's like, okay, that's my job. But you actually moved away. Yeah. I looked at the people and I, you know, the five year plan thing. I looked around and I was like, this is where I want, do I want to be them in five years? That's a great question. No. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be them in five years. Yeah. I want to be those sweaty, you know, pitchers, who, writers who are coming in and being miserable. So then what's going on in your mind? Because there's no guarantee this is going to work. You know, you, you're pivoting out of CBS. You're going to write, you're working on your second book, your substitute teaching. What was that season like? Like what, what's going on in your head? I didn't have anything to lose at the time. Hmm. I didn't have a family. I didn't have any money. I was a single woman in Los Angeles. I had a cat. I can always get a job to pay the rent. You know, I was pursuing my dream. It didn't matter. You know, and, it, uh, and I had to try. Yeah. I had to try. Was there any, like, was there any fear during that time? Or was it just clear? It was clearer than it is now. There's a lot more fear now. Really? Because you have, you have more to lose. Yeah fearless then yeah because really there's was nothing it was just me and the art and the cat 
<laughs> yeah. be, that'd be a great children's book. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's interesting how the um, the more you achieve, the more you have to lose, which brings greater fear. Yeah, that's well, and it's interesting too because I wonder sometimes I think I wonder if people need to be reminded how little they have to lose, especially when it's in the beginning. Like if you're scared now, this is this is the least scared. If you're if you're new in this leadership journey or this creative journey or the artistic journey, you have, that's you have the least scared you're going to be. Yep, that's correct. It only gets yep. worse. It only gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> so then, okay, great. So then. I do love this story. So, so how did you get the job at the mouse house? How did that? Okay, happen? here's the story. It's a pretty good story because it it really does. It's a lesson. This story. Um, so I had this book. It's a published book, Houghton Mifflin, with my name on it, hardcover. There it is. And I asked my agent, who was a cartoon agent, um, if I if she would send my material to Disney because I wanted to write an. I had seen an animated feature I thought was abysmal, and I thought I could do better. Uh -huh. I could do better. I could just knew I could do better. So I asked her and she said, no, no, they don't read cartoon writers. It's not the same. It's that same, it's that same mentality, that lane mentality. By the way, I still hear that, not to go off on a tangent on this, but I still hear people in the industry talk about, this is my lane and it's really hard to, to jump lanes. Do you find that to be more true, less true? And why is that? That seems really myopic to me. People don't have a, I think people who are making those decisions don't have a big imagination. You know, I think I've run up against that a lot. Lack of imagination. And also, I think now it's changing because once that we broke through the idea of like television writer versus feature film writer, now yeah. that's crossover. So yeah. that whole stay in your lane thing is shifting quite Good. a bit now. But yeah. back then, it, wait, absolutely. I was, a, I was a Saturday morning 15-minute cartoon writer. And they're like, and that's, that's all she'll ever... That's all I'll ever do because I'm more than that. I'm a, I have a book. Yeah. So I drove it over to the animation studio, which was not on the Disney lot at the time. It was way out in Glendale and there were no guards. <laughs> and I just parked and I walked in and I put my book on the desk and I said, maybe somebody here wants to read this. And okay. I want to, I want to capture this just for a second. <laughs> You're walking into the offices. What's going on in your head? Do you remember what you were feeling? Animation was the poor stepchild of the studio at that point. There was no guards. Nobody cared about it, really. It was before the renaissance of animation, before Little Mermaid. And so I just, I, I don't know. What did I have to lose? Absolutely nothing. I wasn't going to get arrested. Did you, did you walk in like with a smile? Were you sheepish? Were you like, did you, did, was, was there any kind of internal dialogue around... You know, just act confident, act like you belong here. Yeah. Just walked in and said, here, I'm not going to stay long. Yeah. I'm as here as long as a messenger is here, right? Yeah. So so they don't know who I am. I just, and, and what happened, I, I believe what happened was soon after that, a Disney executive came out. I think he was hanging out with the receptionist, uh -huh. you know, <laughs> hanging out, you know, like, doing his thing. He wasn't married at the time. So I think that's kind of what happened. A little madman action. Yeah, and uh, he and the book was lying there, and he picked it up, and he took it home with him. And I I gave it to him on Friday, and my phone rang on Sunday, and he said, "You have to come and work for us." Wow. And I said, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that was easy. <laughs> yeah, that was easy. Yeah. Only only took me leaving my job and and, and working, working as a substitute school teacher was crazy time. You oh, know. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, so is your was it Muppet Babies? Is that what they first brought you in on, or is it something else? No, Muppet Babies. That was a spec that I wrote for Saturday morning. 
Um, huh. They brought me in on um, uh, Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Yeah, they wanted me to write a Winnie the Pooh feature, which I did, uh -huh. um, and they didn't make it. Okay. And by the way, this might be a, a foreign to people who aren't in like the business. Oh. Like, people can make a full time living as a writer and have people never see their work. Is that That's is that true? Correct? Yeah. And how does yeah. that how to, explain to our audience how that works? Because they pay you to write it, develop it, and write it. And sometimes it's a step deal where you get to paid for the treatment, and um, and then if you go to the next step, and you go to the next step. Um, but then often these these scripts just lie on on they just lie on the shelf without ever being made. But for whatever reason, the studio shifts its you know focus or um, whatever it was. So yeah, a lot of people can make you can make a living without ever having anything happen. And when when this is happening, you're writing Winnie the Pooh, and even when it didn't get made, is there disappointment there, or is it like, no, I'm here, I'm writing feature length stuff? Yeah, it's exciting. And then they asked me to to look at Beauty and the Beast, the um, the fairy tale, to see if I had a, an approach. Because they had been work, they've been struggling with it. Many many struggles, right? Prior, Walt had struggled with it. It had been struggled with, um, and so I brought a different point of view. Uh, and then I wrote that, and it was originally not a musical. Really, um, wasn't no. It was a, it was straight because you know we Little again Little Mermaid hadn't happened yet. Yeah, that's right. So then when they come to you, were you carrying a different point of view or did they say, hey, we want you to come? Did you have to think about it or was it fast or what was the process for you developing the point of view? And could you define and, and tell our audience a little bit about, and maybe this is too much in the weeds for some folks, but I really enjoy this. Tell them about what they had currently done with Belle and then the different point of view that you brought that became iconic and, and, and revolutionary in a lot of ways. It was post the non-musical version. I focus more on the objects and I gave them life and personality, which is what was missing. And Belle, it wasn't until I, I hooked up with Howard Ashman mm -hmm. when we started making it a musical that mm -hmm. everything changed in terms of uh, Belle as a, as a feminist protagonist, a feminist fairy tale princess, in quotes. And it was really Howard and I, I'm a feminist, so I grew up with that agenda. And he had a sort of a, a different approach. And we melded those together and um really you know i was always pushing for every single scene i was pushing for bell being a proactive bell not making baking cakes hmm. you know bell creating her own destiny um and sort of it was it was the combination of howard and i i think it gave me the more courage yeah and, and just for our listeners so howard is is a, a very very famous lyricist and he Right. He he and he uh, Howard Ashman. He wrote a Little Shop of Horrors on Broadway. Yeah. And then he wrote Little Mermaid with Alan Menken. And um, then he approached Beauty. And he uh, tragically he had HIV/AIDS at the time. Yeah. So I think Howard would have wanted to write it himself, but he was sick. Hmm. So yeah. I was this dumb girl from Long Beach, you know, and he was this Tony Award winning. Composer, genius. genius. Yes, a genius. Yeah. And somehow I ended up in this in this man's presence. Come on. Amazing, right? What am yes. What am I doing here? Well, what, uh, a perfect, what a perfect coupling, though, because you're right. Like he does bring this. He did bring that edgy, progressive energy to this conversation, and then you were just the perfect uh, counterpart to that to usher in the character that now we know as Belle. Yeah. And he, he didn't know what to make of me, you can imagine. 
Yeah. How, yeah. What was, well, who, I mean, who is this? <laughs> did you, yeah. Cause I mean, I guess he's kind of used to working with people who know what they're doing. <laughs> I know. And I, I had never written a musical before, but I think because I, I don't know what is it. I'm, I'm just fearless in those moments. Creatively, I'm fearless. It's like I can match you creatively. I know I can. So I wasn't afraid. I love that, Linda, and I do get that from you. And I guess, I guess what I'm, what I'm hoping for, and, and it may not work. What I'm hoping for one is, what does that feel like? That fearlessness. Like, what's what are the thoughts? And 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 do you think that you can teach that? Do you think that you can help other people? cultivate that kind of fearlessness to where a first time feature film writer can work with one of the most iconic lyricists of a generation and show up as a partner. I think I didn't know enough to be afraid of him. Mm -hmm. I really didn't because I didn't come from the theater. I wasn't from New York and I came from California. So I really like wasn't as educated about who Howard and Alan were. Yeah. So that helped me. Ignorance yeah. is bliss. It really yeah. did help me. I tell my daughter this all the time when she was struggling about what to do and competition, being a millennial and all those things. Yeah. It's like you're a horse with blinders on. Hmm. You have blinders on. Don't look at anything else. Screw them. Who cares what they're doing? Yeah. Just look at what you're doing. And then that takes away the, the, the competition fear. You know, all those, those fears that you're not good enough, all of that. You just focus, focus on the creativity. In that sense, then are you, and maybe this isn't the right language when you're writing, are you think, are you trying to be the best? Are you like, what's a, what's a driver there? Are, do you, do you, do you, how do you get better at what you do? And does it even work that way in, in your mind with your, with your art? I'm very, very competitive creatively. Okay. And how, what does that look like? It looks like. I'm doing um, the movie version of Eloise. Do you know mm -hmm. Eloise, the little girl at the plaza? Mm -hmm. It's like, iconic, and I've always loved her. And I found out with, when I was agentless, um, we know we didn't have agents for two years. Yes, during the strike. Yeah, during, yeah. The, during the break. There was a company that was developing it. They were looking for writers. And generally, when you look for writers, it's like everybody goes, okay, I want to try my hand. At, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. And generally, I don't have to do that anymore at this point. This was like last year in March. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have to generally do that. I don't have to do a sweepstakes pitch, as they called it. Yeah, you have to go in and audition. I don't have to audition generally. You have to come up with a take that they like. It gives me great joy to say, okay, bring it. Yeah. Bring it. I can beat you. I know that's just horrible to say, but it's true. When I know I have something, Eloise yeah. was mine. It was like, get out of my way. Just get out of my way. This is good. I know what I'm doing. Same with Maleficent. Yeah. Um, did you see Maleficent? I did. Uh, it's uh, beautiful. You know, there was a lot of other writers who were, who were trying to, to, to adapt, make Maleficent, you know. And it was like, I know this is the best. You can't even top nobody. Bring it. Nobody can top this. She has her wings stolen, for God's sake. Don't even try. <laughs> That's, well, and, and you know, we've talked a little bit about how there, you've woven a lot of your personal story into that film particularly, which makes me think about run, Running Before the Wind, how that was autobiographical. Do you, do you do that? Do you bring your own story into these, these mega stories that are being told to literally billions of people across the planet? I don't know how else to do it. I don't know how else to reach the emotion. I don't know how else to touch the truth. But to look to look at my human experience because it's all of our human experiences. You know, Maleficent was in a. Uh, I didn't know till it was over. 
I didn't know until I was doing an interview for the LA Times that it was a love letter to my daughter and an apology for the divorce. Hmm. I didn't even know. Yeah. It just comes out. Do you wonder if other people even knew it before you did? No, I don't think anybody did. No. Yeah. It's just it's so personal. Yeah. That's probably why it connects. You know, I don't even take anything on unless I can think I can find the universal truth in it that, that I can relate to and I can that I think that I can embody and depict and, and create a, a tale that depicts that truth and enlightens and hopefully uh, uplifts. And I, and I think you, obviously the record shows you've been very successful on that. I'm going to, I'm going to shift just a little bit because I think obviously if our listeners are listening to you, I think one of the things they're going to hear is like, man, this, this person is confident. <laughs> like she's got, <laughs> she's got some chutzpah. Um, and, and I think, and I think there's a, when I think about you and I think about other people who I really admire, there is this, this self-advocacy, but there's also this other thing because I know people, and even when I say the phrase self-advocacy, I get a little shiver down my spine because I imagine people who aren't competent asking for roles they don't deserve because they don't, they're not competent and then getting pissed when someone says, Hey, you're not competent. Right. And, and, and so I think there's a, I think there's a wrong way to, to advocate for yourself. And I think that based on results, you have, unlocked some like some kind of ingredient process to advocating for yourself in a way that that works uh if hypothetically speaking that's if that's true what would you say is the the cocktail or the ingredients to advocating for yourself well to where you can walk in the room with a little bit of swagger but it doesn't shut down you know the conversation or actually lets helps you get the gig i swagger to the agents i don't walk i don't swagger to the people that are that i'm telling the story to that's just bad form my agents, I have to because you just have to with agents. What does that mean? Like, what is it? it what mean, is you just have to like say, just do it. Just put <laughs> me in there. Like you work. No offense, you work for me. Yeah. This, this is what I want. Yeah. But there is an internal swagger. Like when you say, I've got a take on this, and it's the best. Like move out of the way. Is is that to the agent? Is that to the studio exec when you're pitching in the room? Like where does, oh, no, where no, does no, that that's live? Not to them. It's it's to my. It's nothing. That's actually to nobody but me. Got it. It's actually to me. And and the thing that I have learned is that I trust it. I trust my creativity. I lean on it like a friend. Hmm. It's my friend. You know, and I don't, and on the on very sort of woo-woo level, mm -hmm. I don't think that I'm I'm the I don't think it's up to me. I don't think it's me. I think that I get you know, the the things come through me. You know, the, uh, whatever it is, the creative force, whatever it is, it's like composers. They have a direct line to the to the music of the spheres, I believe. Yeah. I, I, it just comes through this body with this experience, with this brain, with this time and you know, and, and all of that. I, so I don't, it's not about me. Yeah. You're like a, you're like a, a vessel. Yeah. But again, with all of my thing that I bring to it. See, that's fascinating. And. Another time I'd like to talk about that because I was, I had dinner not too long ago with Stephen Pressfield, who, uh, I don't know if he, he wrote the war of art and, um, he, he, Elizabeth Gilbert says the same thing. So many artists talk about that kind of disembodied, uh, channeling that happens. And I'll, to be totally honest, and, and we've, you know, we've talked about spiritual stuff too, and you know, a little bit of my spiritual background. I always struggle with that. It, which is weird, right? Because I have a spiritual background. I consider myself yeah. a spiritual person. And I get, I mean, I wonder, I wonder if maybe one of the reasons why I struggle with it is because I see people sometimes, you, by the way, you don't do this. Steven doesn't do this. Elizabeth Gilbert doesn't do this. But sometimes I see the museness 
paradigm as an excuse not to work hard or as a, it's like a passivity, like they're waiting for the muse to come and you just don't strike <laughs> me as a passive person. You know, like there is a human side to putting yourself in the position to be used by the muse. There's no, there's no waiting. Like I, in my process is, is walking. Um, that's how I create or how I think that's how the ideas come, but I go out to find it. You know, I, I have intention, you know, I'm not just like, Oh, just hit me with some cool idea. I have intention. So you'll, you'll go on a walk saying, I'm, I'm trying to solve this. I'm this trying specific. to solve this particular problem. And it's amazing because if I'm open and I, again, don't think it's about me. It's not about my ego. If I'm open, you have to open yourself. The ideas actually answers just drop on the sidewalk in front of me. It's like, Oh, thank you. There it and is. Do you go out with a notebook or do you have like Evernote on your phone? Like what's the mechanics of that? Uh, yeah, I do sometimes put the, use the note thing on my phone. Yeah. And yeah. Just, boom. And it's like, thank you. Sometimes, and then you head back home. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was again, this with, with Eloise, I was about to give up one day because I couldn't crack it. It was too hard. It wasn't up there. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I just didn't think I could do it. I was going to call and say, I can't do this. And I was, I was okay, one more time on a work, I'm going to work this problem creatively. I'm going to go out one more time. And the answer did show up. So then I think, well, okay, then it was meant to be. Yeah. And I think what, what I value about that story is, you know, the, the ritual or the habit or the discipline, you know, the thing, you know, the place to put yourself to see if the rain's going to fall. But I'm not going to sit in my chair and wait for it to, to come down out of the blue with, you know, music and you have to you have to pursue yeah <laughs> you have to put yourself in that position and you can't be lazy that's an interesting word you know if you're gonna if we're gonna personify that kind of muse thing i like the word pursue because it's almost like a romance it's almost like a, a a chasing after like trying to get the attention of this this gift that you're asking from the gods or whoever to help you with with your art or your craft or whatever it is you're up to it, it does sound a little sort of like, you know, I really do believe it. It's not some fake humility. I really, yeah. really do believe that. And and I think the minute I stop believing it, she'll stop coming. That's fascinating. Well, yeah. And and I believe that it's an authentic expression of what it feels like. You know, like that is what it, I, 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 all, the, all the artists I respect, that's what they say, Jason, whether it's true or not, that's exactly what it feels like. And yeah. so, you, so you might as well act like it's true. <laughs> Yeah. That's what it feels like. Yeah. yeah. So then with that, is there, is there a refinement to that? Like how long did it take you to realize that tapping into the muse was a walk away? Um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, walking is just, it's just my extra, one of my exercises. And, um, and I think when I first left my job to be a writer, actually before I left, before I made the phone call, before I went back in to turn in my little resignation, Mm -hmm. I said, okay, if you're going to be a writer, then you have to be able to describe things. So I remember it was raining and I took my umbrella and I went out and I said, okay, on this walk, you have to figure out how to describe that leaf. Huh. Describe the leaf, Linda, or you can't do this or you're not allowed to do it. That's so awesome. That became like the, the walk became the way for me, the way yeah. in. Yeah. For you to practice. Well then, and, and this in some ways is now Hollywood lore, but I think it's, I think our audience would enjoy it. So walking is a theme in your life. You used to walk 
uh, and read when you were a kid. Uh, <laughs> right. And so yeah. tie that knot for us in terms of how you brought that into uh, Beauty and the Beast. Howard and I had come up with Belle um, reading, being a reader, because she had to have a hobby. And the the Disney at the time said it was a too passive for animation. It was too passive a, a, an occupation, so a hobby. So mm -hmm. I remembered when I was a kid, I would I would I loved to read, and my mother would send me to the store, would interrupt my reading to send me to the store. So I wouldn't interrupt. I would keep reading and walk. I knew the way so well. I would walk into the grocery store, walk to reading, get the milk, walk to the to the uh, cashier, pay the money, keep reading, and walk all the way home. And I thought, okay, so what if we did that with Belle? Yeah. What if she reads and walks at the same time? And of course, that became the eight-minute opening song number, yeah. uh, which is insane. <laughs> uh, and by the way, just a comment on that for a second, because uh, that's a, I feel like that's a good note. I feel like it's an it's an appropriate note to say, hey, watching someone read is boring, and and so if you want to make her smart. We had to fix that. And then you came up with this really innovative way rather than being like, no, like she's going to be reading Proust and it's going to be great, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and you guys, are, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You're just anti women reading like you. You went back to the drawing board and made it really wonderful and better. I think uh, creative problem solving is one of my is one of my uh, gifts. Really? I can creatively problem solve for you. So and if I present me a problem, I'm I creatively find a way around that or a way through it or solve it in some way. Well, and certainly that's true on the back, on the, the backside of your career, like getting a job at CPS or CBS writing during lunch breaks. I mean, you, you found a way of problem solving, creative problem solving to put yourself in the positions and places where you'll be able to succeed. Is that part of what you're talking about? Um, yes. It also, uh, creatively in the, in the, in the work, you know, we can't get her, that character from here to there because of blah, whatever it is. So it was like, oh, well, in here, here's the thing. You're looking at it wrong. If we go outside of the room and stand on the roof and look down from the top, we can get her out. Huh. Just reposition your point of view. You know, rethink it. You can problem solve creatively. creatively. Yeah, there's an agility, an agility of, of mind I feel like you have that allows you to see things from like a Rubik's Cube perspective. You can move it around. Yeah, and other people's point of view as well. Have you, so this is interesting because, and you and I've talked a little bit about this privately in terms of like leadership, that problem solving ability, I feel like is an indispensable part of leadership. So for people who are listening, like you're always solving problems because leadership is, you know, especially when you're leading teams or whatever, teams are like these organic, uh, complicated emotional machines and you're trying to get it to work and not and working isn't just producing a thing, but it's also how people are enjoying the process of production. And so you're constantly having to problem solve and, and move things around and, and get people on board. Like, I feel like, like you pitching, I feel like you could sell ice to an Eskimo. But the problem is, is your ice is like really good, <laughs> you know, like it's solid top notch, you know, maybe, maybe frozen vodka, Eskimo, good stuff. And like you, you are, you're just such a compelling leader and I, I don't want to belabor that too much and you can respond if you want, but I also don't want to put you on the spot. Do you have any thoughts on that? Problem solve. Yes. I'm, I'm just not that much. I'm not um, that social. Hmm. I think maybe a little social anxiety. So I think being a leader intimidates me because hmm. of that. Yeah. I, I, in the work, I'm fearless, fearless. Me is different than the work. 
That's fascinating. Oh, (laughs) no, it's good. No, I I, I love that. And I I think there's a lot of people listening who will empathize with that. I think that makes a lot of sense to people. And and frankly, and again, we we can talk about this later because I'm such a huge fan of you. I I do like helping people. Like recently we we had a conversation with a, a, a professional athlete and they see their lane. You know, we, we, sometimes we do it to ourselves. This is my lane and I can't go in the other lanes. And there, and a lot of, a lot of professional athletes struggle to pivot into other careers after they retire because they're like, I don't have any transferable skills. And right. it's like, are you kidding me? Like you're one of the best in the world at what you do. You know how to problem solve, you know how to work hard, you know how to discipline yourself, you know, how to send benchmarks. I'm talking about athletes. And when I, when I talk to very, very, very successful artists, it's the same thing. You know, you're like Liam Neeson from Taken. Like you have a very unique set of skills that is transferable uh, in other domains. I was lucky enough to work with Kobe, uh, near the end. And what was amazing about Kobe was he pivoted, boy, did he pivot. And when I first met him, which would maybe like a year before he died, he brought me to his studio where he was Granity Productions, where he was, he was like, we're we're writing now, we're writing novels. And I'm looking at him thinking you're writing novels. Okay. (laughs) Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Right. Yeah. He hired writers. He generated mm-hmm. like four or five or six novels, you know, ch- children or a young adult, various uh, areas. And he yeah. was developing television. Mm-hmm. And it was like, yeah, you don't stay in your lane. He did not. And he was, he was, he was with me. He told me that he, he saw the Pixar guys at the, at the Academy Awards when he won for um, Dear Basketball. He said to the Pixar guys, because he wanted to start an animation studio, he said, I'm coming for you. Yes, Mamba. Mamba's coming for you. That's amazing. I'm, like, I'm so like, wow, okay, I'm See, in. I love that. And honestly, you tell that story about him and you're in, maybe is isn't like staying in your lane, but like expanding your lane. You know, it's like building new lanes and being multi-lane and allowing yourself to to explore who you are and what you're capable of. And I feel like you've done a good job of that. And I, so now I want to come back to, to your work a little bit. So Beauty and the Beast has some, you know, marginal success. Um, and and just in case people don't know, I'm and joking. It's, you know, the the first animated feature ever to be nominated for Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, that's insane. Not, not Best Animated Feature. They didn't best, have a category then. Yeah. Yeah. Best Picture. And I found this quote uh, that I want to read to you and see if it's accurate. And then I want to talk about it a little bit because this does get to the nature of why this podcast exists. You said, uh, friends told me that it's much better if the first books you write weren't published. Then you said, my first two were. They told me it's better if your if your first produced screenplay isn't pu- published, pushed for best picture. Mine <laughs> is the first animated film to be considered for this award. You right. said, this is nice, but it's really scary for me. I just hope that Beauty and the Beast isn't the greatest thing I'll ever do. And... You know, I think a lot of people, especially people who are successful, sometimes ask, uh, like Jack Nicholson, you know, is this as good as it gets? Um, I, I want to, how did you, and I, so I want to go to that moment when, maybe even where we started, that moment where you're in Disney World in Orlando, Florida, and there is there are multi-million dollar sets, real life things that exist that came out of your imagination. And there's, and talk to me about, not so much about that feeling of, can I top this? But I want to talk about what comes next because you did, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but you did top this in terms of, especially in terms of box office success. There there are greater stories that you told after Beauty and the Beast. Connect those dots for me. How did you manage being the best and what came next? Yeah, it was, I remember I did say that because it was scary because I had that same boyfriend, the fame boyfriend had said, Mm -hmm. 
you know, you better you better hope that the first thing you ever do, because then then what do you have to strive for? You already got you're already at the top of the mountain. You already got the gold ring. Now what? Now well, what? Because that because the creative drive, you know, that's just one mountain that doesn't tell every story. That isn't every theme ever. Yeah. Isn't like new stuff that comes at you that you want to you want to say something about. It, that's just that's just one. And it wasn't about trying to you know be more successful or you know even make money. It was about okay, I have another story I want to tell. And mm -hmm. and luckily I was at Disney and they came in with a Lion King. You know I was in in position. Yeah. At that point. When yeah. you're on the Lion King, was there any fear? Was there, was there any like, this is the follow-up to the bizarrely successful Beauty and the Beast? Or was it just, nope, I just want to create good work? I, I was, again, it was creative problem solving involved with the Lion King. It wasn't called the Lion King then. It was King of the Jungle. Mm -hmm. And it was no, no again, no music. It was, mm -hmm. there was a script. It was not interesting enough. It was too complex. Um, and I, it, was a, it was really a creative problem solving issue. It's like, how am I going to make this? What am I going to make this? It's a coming of age story of a, of a boy and uh, of, a, of a lion cub in Africa. How am I going to make this a compelling story that people care about and it relates to us, hmm. relates to families? So it was. It was more really. You just put those blinders on. It's. It's not about Beauty and the Beast or the, or the mountain or success. It's about get this job done. This question may be a little offensive, but have you ever been tempted to hang up your spurs? Yeah, I have. Um, it's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. It's it's very hard, and it doesn't get any particularly any easier. You're still just another writer. When you turn in your draft, it's still just a draft, and you're going to get a lot of notes from a lot of different people, and a lot of challenges, and a lot of politics, and you know, I've had uh, some and big failures as well. I haven't had all successes. I've I've crashed and burned, just like everybody else. Well, I, actually, I don't, I'm not familiar with those. What would you call? <laughs> <laughs> what would you call a crash and burn? Oh, I did this uh, this show on Broadway based on Anne Rice's Lestat. Mm -hmm. Total crash and burn. And what without, does that mean? Like, how do you define that? How do you define that? How do you define crash and burn on Broadway? Is it was well, like financially not successful? The critics didn't like it. Well, critics? Are you kidding? Knives coming out of the newspaper, stabbing <laughs> you, bleeding from every possible orifice, putting you in stocks. And having people walk by and throw vegetables at your face. <laughs> that's what it looks like. Yeah. And that's yeah. real, by the way. I mean, that's that's a real to 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 expose yourself in that way. That's the that's the other thing too, is oftentimes leadership, even very successful leadership, like we have clients that are running multi-billion dollar companies, but they're not famous and they don't want to be famous. You, but your the nature of your work is is incredibly vulnerable and exposing, which means the rejection is incredibly vulnerable and exposing. So then how do you, how do you get back up? How do you manage that? That's a really interesting question too. You have to be able to, you know, if you're, if you're going to do anything worthwhile, you have to dig deep. You have to be able to dig deep. And if you're afraid, or if you have, you're afraid of the last time that happened, I got vegetables thrown at my face. You know, how am I going to do this again? It's scary. Um, but it's the, again, it's the work. It's a goal because I want to tell this story. Yeah, you get excited again. Yeah, you get re-excited. I talked to another artist about this, another writer. It's like you get re who had who had a, a bad experience with Netflix last year. Um, and it's like, okay, what are you doing now? How you get excited about the new project. Yeah, is it almost like that excitement is what heals you from the previous thing? It is. Yeah, that makes sense to me. 
And even I, I read another thing, and I've heard this multiple times. I've never asked this of anybody, but you, you, you had a little aside in another interview that I saw where you were like, there were moments when I had tears on the keyboard from frustration. I just think most people don't know what that's like necessarily. Maybe more people than I think, you know, but I think sometimes people play it so safe. But to, to be so invested in something and to be so in it that where you're like sobbing on your keyboard because something is, isn't going, first of all, do you mind talking about what would cause someone like you to weep? <laughs> and, and then why do you do it? Because it sounds masochistic. Like, why do you torture yourself like that? That's so, the, oh, that's part of it. The pain is part of it. Yeah. It is. Go down there and feel the pain because that's, and then come up out of the pain and that's the victory because that's what you're trying to show people or families or kids. It's like, you can fail. You can make a horrible, horrible mistake and you can come back from it. Hmm. But you have to feel what they feel. You have to go down, feel the pain. I was actually, that crying on the keyboard really yeah. came from the end of Homeward Bound. Yeah. And what was, was going on that was so hard? It wasn't hard. It was I was crying because Shadow came over the hill. Oh, that's awesome. Wait, so it wasn't from... I totally misread that quote. So it wasn't because no. you were in pain. It was because no. you were... I was crying because Shadow came over the hill. That's incredible. <laughs> well, that's a whole other thing. Did you see Homer? Yeah. 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 And that, that, everyone cries at that part. Yeah. Well, I was crying too. And were you writing that part? I was writing that part and crying. <laughs> Dripping big droplets onto the keyboard. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, great. So that's incredible. And I think people who've seen that movie, and that's, a, that's a classic. It's really a modern old yeller in a lot of ways. That's our movie. Uh, were the, have there, so I'm assuming then there are other moments too when you're crying, not from the beauty of the moment that you just created. Uh, if I'm not crying, I'm not doing the job. If I'm not crying, I am not doing the job. You're not digging deep enough? I'm not digging dig deep enough. Nope. If I'm not digging it up in myself, it's not good enough. I'm only scratching the surface. And do you feel like that's, I mean, I'm asking you so many leading questions. I feel like that's rare. Do you, is that, is that what you think people that keeps people from their great work? It feels like purging. It's what it's Aristotelian, you know, um, you know, it's about purging pity and fear. So you purge yourself of your emotions when you feel them. And I'm crying on the keyboard. I feel a lot better when I'm done writing that scene. Never. I cried so much in Maleficent, you know, yeah. When she's kissing her, they're just weeping and weeping. Yeah. But it was all coming coming because of my my relationship with my daughter. Yeah, and I feel like the arts lend themselves to that. I guess as we're talking, I'm kind of uh, being as ambidextrous as I can be in terms of the explicit artist conversation, but also folks who are on teams and in companies. And uh, you know, like w work is such a precious thing. You're going to give a hundred thousand hours in a lifetime to work. And what I really admire about you is you've chosen to orient your work around something that deeply, profoundly matters to you. Like it's a, it's a, it's an obsession in like a, in a probably mostly healthy way, but sometimes unhealthy way. Yeah. And I guess my encouragement to folks is uh, who are listening is to find that thing, find, find that obsession. What is a thing that really deeply matters to you? Like my parents were public school teachers for 35 years that mattered to them, like helping kids, on a one-on-one -on -one basis matters to them and uh, find that thing in your work. Cause I feel like you've done a really good job of that. No one's work is any more important than anyone else's work. Hmm. Like a, a nurse in an, in, in an emergency room, we know how important they are. Right. Now yeah. we know. Now we, now we're really aware. We're of very what, aware. Yeah. We're, we're very aware. 
for now until we forget. Yeah, yeah. and and what and whatever it is, it's it's you have to be able to do the best and 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 believe in it, and and do the and do the best, give everything to yourself to it. Otherwise, then you're just phoning in your life. Well, I think that's a temptation. That's a drift, even amongst. I would suggest, and I'm curious if you've, seen, if you've seen this is true. I would suggest that's true even amongst the very successful. Like it's you, it's easy to get to a certain certain mountaintop and be like, I'm good. Do you do you ever see that in your world? All the time, and they're phoning it in. Yeah, and you can see it with certain directors that are really really famous, and they've you know, and they work all the time, and you can see that they phone that in from the trailer. Hmm. They were never even on that set. You, you know, you can just see it. You can feel it because they they wanted to do the job or whatever whatever it was. Or the sense that that you got it, you got it. I'm good now. I can do anything. I can breathe on it, and it'll be brilliant. Yeah. Well, no. that's the wrong kind of swagger. And maybe yeah. there's two different types of swagger, right? There's a swagger of I'm good at this, therefore I don't have to show up. And there's a swagger of I've shown up, and that's why this is good. Right. It doesn't. It, to me, it's not good unless you show up and yeah. cry on the keyboard. I love that. Well, and and so one last pivot, and then we'll we'll be done. And thanks again, Linda, for your time. Uh, what another quote that I found that I really loved is, uh, after, so obviously speaking of big directors, you got to work with one of the biggest directors in the history of cinematography, Tim Burton. Yeah. Uh, but, but the process, I think this is really interesting because, so Linda, you know, obviously wrote, uh, Alice in Wonderland and the sequel and a, a couple of things about this that I found really interesting. That I'd love to hear your comments on one is the. And this, I found this in the article, the question of like, what was I thinking? Because I don't think people fully understand. First of all, when you were writing or thinking about writing a sequel to Alice in Wonderland, Tim wasn't attached, you know, like you were bringing a perspective, but no mega director had been attached yet. And there's this moment when you're in London and you're going on a walk and you, and you run into a statue of Lewis Carroll. And here you are working on a sequel to his book. Like this isn't like, just to set the context for this, this isn't like sequelitis. This isn't like writing a, no offense to George Lucas, but writing a Star Wars sequel. This is like someone saying, hey, Charles Dickens, yeah, Christmas Story is pretty good. Let's write a sequel. You know, like, or hey, Hamlet was all right. Let's write a sequel. I mean, that's kind of like writing a sequel to Alice in Wonderland. It's like that. It's like, how? That's what, that's, I actually had writer's block when it, when it occurred to me finally what I had taken on and what I had. <laughs> Oh my lord! I really got writer's block. It's what it, and I was stuck. And it was going to London because I thought I, I can't do Lewis Carroll. I'm not <laughs> Lewis Carroll. Oh my god! Now that doesn't sound like the Linda that we've been hearing. I know, about but it's Lewis Carroll. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Alice in Wonderland. And also, there was personal things going on in my life as well. Divorce and things what had really brought me down psychologically. So mm -hmm. I wasn't at my pop on my game really yeah. in terms of the, the courage. So it was interesting about Alice because, um, so I, I went to London just for Christmas with my daughter and I was walking and there I ran into this, this like small little statue of him. And it was amazing because I just asked his permission. Hmm. I said, I promise I'm not going to mess this up. I'm not going to make it stupid. And ideas came after that. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. And then, and then was it the same? Was it that, I feel like almost like there's like a home base or like a water stick for you where you know when you found True North, was that when you found True North? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's when all the floodgates opened. I, I would see the, the rabbit standing in the park looking at me like, let's go, come on now. So I was like, okay, got it, I'm going, I'm going. That's incredible. Yeah. You're late. Yeah, I was late. But an interesting thing that I wrote that in a very, very dark time in my life personally, very dark. 
I had moved, I had a death in my family and I was divorced hmm. all at the same time. And I was writing and I was, I had been hired to write this that I had pitched. And it was interesting because that's, that's when I did that work. It's like when yeah. I was at my lowest. And what did that look like? Even when you say you weren't at the top of your game, like, and this is, this is, this is probably going to be obvious to you, but like, so what, so, so what, like you're going through a divorce or a death in the family. How does that affect your writing? It, everything. It affects everything. Yeah. It's, because you put yourself into it and there was nothing, you know, I was, I was devastated, divorce wise, devastated, you know, yeah. death moving. You know, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know. I couldn't find myself. Well, that seems like it, that, and that journey of rediscovering yourself makes it into the story of Alice. Yep. I did. That's incredible. Yeah. I can't wait for them to make a movie about you, Linda. Not about me. <laughs> Not about me. Agree to disagree. <laughs> We can continue our leadership conversation another another time. I'm I'm looking forward to that as well. And I'll say so. And just the reason why I asked about that is because I think there's a thread here that I want our audiences to make to hear is you you keep raising the bar and you've kept raising the bar and you keep swinging and you keep getting up to bat. And you know you're in a, an interesting season of your life. I won't say your age, but like you're in this season and you're still showing up. Let's you're, say I got my second shot. You just got your second shot. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm outed. Yeah, you were allowed, right. but you, you did it ethically though. You got like, you're in that group. That getting your second shot or getting your shot out to you. Oh, oh, I get it. Yeah, because now now people know what age group you're yeah. in. Yeah, stupidly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I now I got my shot. Uh huh. Okay. And can right. you obviously because of NDAs and stuff like that? I think there's some things you can't share, but because I want our listeners, no matter where you are, keep showing up. Keep you you haven't arrived, even if you're tempted to believe that you have. There's more. There's always more. What are the things, what are some, can you give us any hints and again, honoring projects and things like that, any hints of things you're working on? And is there anything, is there anything that's inspiring you right now? Yes. Yeah, so this, this, uh, this Eloise that I, that I did and we're going, we're hopefully fingers crossed making it as a, a musical as well. Mm. So I'm very excited about that. Um, yeah. And, and that will be your first rodeo just for our listeners. Cause she, we, we mentioned at the top, but she uh, was nominated for a Tony for her, uh, Beauty and the Beast on Broadway, and you've done several things on Broadway, but Crash and Burn too. Come on, yep. And you keep showing up. You have to. I'm not going to go out on that. <laughs> it's uh, that's great. I'm not dead yet. Like, let's... Not, no, not 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 at all. And if there's if it, it if it's worthy, I'll, I'll show up for it. Well, and here's to many more worthy projects. Uh, as a period to this, because we're out of time. Um, I mentioned at the beginning when was a moment when you were like, pinch me, I can't believe this is my life. And one of the clearest ones for me was sitting next to you at the story yeah. conference, holding a microphone, feeling the audience, his audience was doing a Q&A with you and they asked me to moderate. I didn't, I, they asked me to moderate and I didn't know who they'd asked me to moderate for. So right. I just showed up and, and there you were. And I was, I was sitting next to you, hearing you talk about beating the beast. I remember I, I should have been listening to your answer, but instead I was in my head thinking, I cannot believe this is my life. So, uh, Linda, thank you so much for your friendship. Thank you for the inspiration. Thanks for making time. I really, really appreciate you. I had a great time. Thank you. You're doing yeah. such great work. Uh, thanks, Linda. Talk soon. 
Thank you for listening. For more resources like this, as well as articles and videos by all of our coaches, go to novus.global and click on resources. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Rate and leave a review. If you didn't like us, just leave us alone. We drop new episodes every week and we don't want you to miss out. If you want to explore hiring a Novus Global Coach or becoming an executive coach at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching, email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and remember, dare to go beyond high performance.